G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Uh, do you know whether it's going to happen? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen this week? I have papers here that say it's going to happen this week. Donald Trump is going to get arrested or indicted. Are they the same thing? What's, an in, what's being indicted and what's being arrested? Anyway, it's about to happen. It's imminent now. We've heard about it for years and now Donald J. Trump, uh, former president of the United States, uh, going to be uh, thrown in the in the slammer in the clinker. He's going to be in an orange jumpsuit imminently. That's what it says here. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I wanted to talk to somebody. Well, here's the real truth. I already had scheduled today's guest uh, to talk about a number of other issues on which he's absolutely fascinating, and it just so happens that he's also a Washington insider which means that he can give us the lowdown, uh, the goss, the dirt on what's about to happen to Mr. Donald J. Trump. But that doesn't even form the bulk of what I'm interested in talking about to Jamie Kerchick. Jamie, I'm not going to preface this terribly much except to tell you who he is. He's a journalist. Um, he's been published everywhere, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, New York Review of Books, uh, New York Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, The Spectator, The Times Literary Supplement, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Die Welt. Do you want me to go on? Uh, he's something of a, a Europe specialist and a sort of history of American politics in the 20th century specialist, if that's fair to say. He wrote a book mm, six years ago called The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. And he's held a lot of positions at think tanks. He's a young guy. He's even younger than me. <laughs> even younger than me. I'm a spring chicken. Look at how pretty I look. Go and Google my face. Baby. Uh, he's held lots of positions at important sounding think tanks like the Atlantic Council and the Brookings Institution and the Foreign Policy Initiative and so on. But his latest book is super interesting. It's called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. And imagine, if you will, what it must have been like in the 1950s to be a spy at the height of the Cold War and be a closeted gay. There were a lot of them. There were an unusually large number of them. And many of them ended up hanging themselves, being found in vehicles, shot in the head. Secret City is quite a salacious book. And Jamie talks us through it uh, after having spoken to us about Donald J. Trump. And then also telling us why he recently wrote about um, the attack on the New York Times by LGBTQIA plus organizations and how he sees parallels between the chilling of speech in cultural circles and cultural elites today and the kind of chilling of speech that we saw during the Cold War. So this is a fantastic, scintillating, gripping chat with a very clever guy. Please enjoy the one and only Jamie Kirchner. The headline on uh, abc.net.au, the public broadcaster, is uh, are we expecting Trump to be arrested this week? Mm. Are we expecting Trump to be arrested this week, Jamie? Oh, God. I've stopped um, making predictions about American politics a long time ago. <laughs> um, I think there's a good chance he'll be indicted, yes. Um, is that the same thing? Well, he would be indicted... Um, I guess it's a technical question. He might turn himself in to avoid an actual, you know, what we call a perp walk, which is when the 
police, you know, come to your home and put you, oh, lock you up in handcuffs. So yeah, if he was indicted, he would have to appear and he would have to appear in court. Um, so I think it's it's very much possible. Um, this is based upon the fact that you know it sounds as if the the DA, the district attorney in Manhattan, has informed Trump's lawyers that they wanted him to testify in this case involving Stormy Daniels, and they don't usually do that unless they're preparing an indictment. You know, they 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 make an offer to the potential defendant only in cases where they're preparing an indictment. So I I think it is somewhat likely, yes. Wow. And I think it's a really bad I think it's a really bad decision. Uh both a bad legally decision legally or a bad decision politically. Both. Both. I mean, look, this all boils down to these hush money payments that he made to Stormy Daniels in twenty sixteen. And the contention is that this constituted a campaign finance violation. Now, just take it, us back as a remind us who Stormy Daniels was. Stormy Daniels was a porn star who claimed that Trump and her that she slept with Donald Trump many years ago. She did sign an NDA. She signed a non-disclosure agreement, which she claimed um, she was paid for. Um, and part of that NDA, of course, is that you don't disclose anything. She then apparently violated that. Um, to, in order to publicize this. Um, and so the, the argument is that by paying her off in the fall of 2016, this was done to help his campaign to stave off you know, an embarrassing uh, publicity incident. And that by not reporting it as a campaign expense, this constituted a violation of campaign finance laws. And I just, I mean, look, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, it's is it imaginable that he might have paid her off, even if he wasn't running for president, just because he's a public figure and didn't this want? What I don't understand that, about this is I'm I'm glad that you're back. And that's and by the way, that's legal. I mean, these are these happen all the time. By the way, I'm sure right. they happen. I'm sure they happen in Australia too, of where course. there are claims of sexual harassment are made privately, and um, this person, the person who's accused, does not want it to become public, and maybe they're innocent. You know, maybe I mean I'm 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 aware of of cases where they're men have been accused of things that they did not do. That's because possible, the, but in the but, case of... But because they have... It, but, but because, yeah, it, it, this may have happened, but regardless, it's legal, and it, it, it happens, right? So the issue the issue isn't, you know, did he pay off a woman? Is that illegal? No, that's not illegal. The issue is that he did it while he was running for president. And therefore, yeah. and therefore, because this would have conceivably helped his campaign, he had to have reported it as a campaign finance expense, and he didn't, and therefore it's a, it's a campaign finance violation. I think that's a very tenuous argument. I'm glad that you're as confused as I am by this because I thought it was just because I'm not an American that I don't understand how this is a campaign violation. And lots of of legal experts say that it's a very complex case. And I just think it's a shame because, you know, in the entire history of the American Republic, we have never seen a former president indicted, which is not to say that Trump shouldn't be indicted. He did lots of things that I think are indictable. But it shouldn't be this, you know. If he's going to be mm. indicted for, if he's going to be indicted for something and charged, the standard has to be extremely high, and it also has to be an airtight case. So there are two other cases going. So there are two other investigations going on. One concerning January six, and they're both federal investigations. Um, or th- th- this is a federal investigation, and then there's another investigation going on in Georgia, where there's audio of him trying to tell the Secretary of State to basically doctor the vote for him. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having, the, having a correct – the people of Georgia are angry. 
And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, that Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. No, Ryan Germany. No, Dominion is not. Um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County? We're having well, but no, but but have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. You should want to have an accurate election, and you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have. You don't have. Not even close. You got, you're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, So tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. Uh, for instance, I'm hearing Ryan, and he's probably... I'm sure a great lawyer and everything, but he's making statements about those ballots that he doesn't know. But he's making them with such he, – he did make them with surety, but now I think he's less sure because the answer is they all went to Biden. And that alone wins us the election by a lot. You know, so. Mr. President, uh, you have people that submit information, and we have our people that submit information – and then it comes before the court, and the court then has to make a determination. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. Well, under law, you're not allowed to give faulty election results, okay? You're not allowed to do that, and that's what you've done. This is a faulty election result. And honestly, this should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up, and because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam, and because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out 
before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday. Right. So I would rather see, you know, if he's going to be indicted for something, I would rather be one of those two cases where he was, you know, actively trying to overturn a democratic election rather than this convoluted case involving a woman that he slept with. Are there not, I mean, in, the, in his long history of tax shenanigans and dodgy business dealings from Trump stakes to Trump University to inflating the value of his company when he's trying to borrow money and then deflating the value of his company when he's declaring his taxes, none of, none of the fact that he's been essentially an open and proud uh, con man for the past 50 years, that isn't, there's, that I don't find anything that's technically illegal in that? Yeah, well, you know, he's been able to get away with it. I mean, for one, when you're the president, there's a Justice Department code or something uh, where they don't bring charges against a sitting president. So while he was president, he was basically... That's, in, a, that's a norm. That, that's not, it's sure. not a, a code written down in a code. Yeah, right. It's a norm, right. So yeah. now that he's left, there are all these investigations going on. And, you know, the Democrats are very, or many of them are very keen on nabbing him on something. But no, you're right. They haven't, in all these many years that he's been a public figure, he has not... Um, I mean, he's had lost, many lawsuits and he's lost many of them, but they haven't been criminal charges, if I'm not mistaken. And just to reiterate for people, the Stormy Daniels thing. So it was 2000. You said you said many years ago, 2006. I think it was 2006 was when the affair. He was married to Melania. Yeah. He, cheated, he allegedly cheated on Melania with this porn star. And there was the another woman, too. There was a former playmate, a former Playboy playmate as well. Right. Now, this is not something that will will shock people enormously since he has bragged in the past about sleeping with people and being able to, you know, grab them wherever he wants to. And he's not the most, uh, fidelity is not the word that comes to mind. Maybe when you think about young Donald Uh, and their timelines did overlap. She was at the same place. They were at some golf tournament. I think they were at the same hotel, whatever. She says that she went up to his room, that they had a very quick minute and a half of terrible sex and uh that was that and then yeah. and then he in in 2016 i guess the i guess the thing that makes it a little bit fishy about it being an election related donation is that it happens 10 years after the fact is that is that right the the allegation is yeah. that he paid her while he was running for president so if it was unrelated to the election one might say well why didn't he pay her back in 2007 but then i guess the retort could be she wasn't going to break the nda until I believe, I believe that's what it was. I, b- I believe once he started running for president and was about to win, she decided to break the NDA. Right. And what he did was they did it. They did it through the National Enquirer, the, the tabloid publication, whose owner was friends with Trump, and they basically purchased her story, and so the money was funneled through them. I believe that's what happened. I, I see. Said, it's, they it's buy quite, the story in order to not publish it. Yeah, as I said, it's quite convoluted. And you know what? If you're going to indict a former president who has extremely devoted followers, you know, there's this concept of prosec- prosecutorial discretion. And I'm sure you have it in Australia. Mm. Not, not every crime is prosecuted. And the irony here, of course, is that this district attorney in New York is one of these progressive prosecutors who came, you know, who campaigned for office pledging not to prosecute all sorts of low level, you know, lifestyle nonviolent crimes which you know, conservatives would argue has led to an increase in violent crime, right? Because when you allow these sorts of quality of life crimes to go unpunished, it, it creates a sort of environment where criminals become more brazen and whatnot. So the irony of, is here is that we have one of these progressive prosecutors who's decided not to prosecute all sorts of other crimes, 
But now he's become very determined to go after Trump for this. And I don't think we can discount the politics behind this. I mean, this is a really important element here. I mean, this is a this is a, a, a district attorney and they are elected in the United States. I don't know what they are in Australia. No, of course we are. Yeah. So they're, in, in same so they're elected in the United States and they are political actors, right? And so if you're a Democratic official in New York, which is a very blue state, um, and Donald Trump is a, is a hate figure among your constituents, then becoming the first prosecutor to indict the former president is great publicity for you. Um, so mm. I know that there are lots of Democrats who are not happy about this because they don't I mean, think it's... You're, yeah. you're toggling a little bit between the legal and the political mm-hmm. critiques of of this charge. Uh, I am less sympathetic to political criticisms of a DA prosecuting a crime because I generally don't share the American infatuation with the office of the president and how important it is and how reverential it is. And I'm not big on pomp and ceremony. And I just think if people break laws, then they should be prosecuted. I mean, I don't think presidents should have the right to pardon people. Yes. Having, having a monarch as your head of state uh, helps that, (laughs) helps that attitude. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it probably does like, you know, that, that this is, it is ridiculous. It's completely Mm -hmm. royal. Royals are ridiculous. And in Australia, we have a a multi-decades long uh, movement, which, which is, has a majority of the people behind it, but has not quite managed to figure out how to how to cut the ties to Buckingham yeah. Palace. Um, so you know we are keenly sensitive of any any kind, anything that smells monarchical, and uh, and the the office of the U.S. president is is a little bit close for my yeah. liking. The idea that a person should get away with crimes just because it's kind of politically inconvenient for people to prosecute them because they used to be the president and that they can then dodge prosecution by potentially running for president again so that they can frame the prosecution as a political witch hunt. All of that just smells to high heaven. And I think the justice system should be separate from politics. But I still don't I I don't understand this election. I I mean, to me, it strikes me that if you. If you do something in the conduct of your normal private life right. that you would plausibly have done if you weren't running for president, yes, then that is not an election contribution. You're not breaking election law for doing that. Otherwise, we're saying that anyone who runs for president is giving up the right to protect their reputation yes. in a way that they would if they weren't running for president simply because they're running for president. And that doesn't yeah. seem like the correct precedent. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's why legally it's not it's far from being an airtight case and it's just a very risky strategy. It would only require one juror on a jury of 12 to agree with you or me. And that would be it. And that case would be in, in Trump would be found not guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then of course he is, able, he and his supporters are able to say, See, vindication. We're, yep. we're actually, we're actually innocent of everything. And the whole, the whole 2020, the whole claims that we were trying to throw the election in, in 2020 are also unfounded. I yes. mean, what do you think about the odds of a prosecution on the Georgia thing? Because that audio of him literally saying, if you could just find another thousand odd votes, that'd be great. How is that not a, a breach of electoral law? Again, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I would imagine he and his team would make the case that you know, it was his freedom of speech, perhaps, or he was making suggestions. He wasn't, um, you know, he didn't have any power as the, as the president over a Georgia state election official. He couldn't fire him. He, you know, there was no kind of chain of command. 
Um, if I was his lawyer, I guess that would be the case I would make. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, it's totally disreputable and disgusting what he did. Um, I think probably the strongest case would be perhaps the speech that he gave on the ellipse. Although even there, you know, we have a very robust first. That? That? that was the speech before before January, before the riot, before the uh, insurrection. Um, there's the claim that he was inciting people to violence, right? What do you um, make of that claim? I'm not even sure I buy that. Claim. I'm not sure. I, I was going to say, you know, we, we have a very robust First Amendment. Right. And, You're allowed to say what you want in the United States. And, and, you and the, yeah. In the in the in the legal the legal um, concept is you have to be in, in term to to consider speech criminal you'd have to be encouraging I believe it is direct imminent action direct imminent violence right so you know if you're standing outside someone's house um, and telling a mob of people to go in and kill this person that would probably not be held to be constitutionally protected speech. Um, and so I'm not sure if what Trump said uh, in the mm. hours in the hours before the attack, you know, rises to that to that. Level. I mean, I get the impression that you're allowed to whip up uh, people's passions yeah. under the First Amendment. What I don't get the what seems to me to be clearly off is if you're the head of state to be calling secretaries of state. I mean, I guess they're not technically under your chain of command, so you don't have any authority to fire them. Yeah. But I mean, to, to make him to make what seem like implicit threats to people, if they can't fudge electoral election results, that there has to be something that's criminal about that. I mean, that's... I don't know. I mean, I guess my attitude on this whole years-long attempts by Democrats to basically you know, use the legal system to get rid of Trump is that it would really be best for the country if he were repudiated at the ballot box. And we did that in 2020. Um, I wish we had, I wish we had done it. I wish we had done it. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying the consensus about whether or not we did in fact do that is important to establish. Of course. Well, half the country, well, not half the country, about a third of the country believes that the election wasn't fair, right? Um, But he's running again, right? And he has very committed, passionate supporters. I would prefer to see him defeated electorally than, than... you know, taken out by some sort of legal strategy. That seems I mean, to kind I've of short-circuit democracy. Argument. Yeah, I've heard that argument. But, I mean, why – it comes back to my point about who is above the law and sure. and why. I mean, why? how far does that argument go? If, if as he said, he could, he, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in New York and get away with it, would you still be saying, well, this should be repudiated at the ballot box? Well, if there is a, if there is a crime that he's – guilty of having committed, and it's something more important than this kind of phony or really insignificant potential uh, campaign finance violation, then yes, then that would be, I think, appropriate, right? But it has to be a really serious crime, and you have to have an airtight case. But so, I mean, how much, more, how much more serious does a crime have to be than trying to throw an, throw an election? The George, well, you're talking about the Georgia case in particular. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if what he did was technically illegal. There's, there's an ongoing investigation, and you know, I await the results of the investigation. There's a lot of you know, punditry in my country of people just kind of opining. Um, without having all the evidence in 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 evidence, and I think we saw that a lot throughout the RussiaGate years, where you know every day Adam Schiff, the head of the Intelligence Committee, would go on television and tell the country that he was in possession of you know top secret information that was going to definitively prove that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians, and he went on and on for years telling us that, and it turned out that there wasn't evidence of that, right? So 
I, I, I wish that our public officials and commentators um, had a little more humility. Uh, I mean, when, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. However, if that Georgia court phone call is not yeah. illegal, then American election law needs updating. Sure. Maybe it does. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure if it would be election law. It might be some other um, statute or, or area of, of, of the law. It might have Maybe, something. Yeah. yeah. I'm not. Yeah. 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 I mean, how do you feel about this? This kind of bubbling along in the background of the conversation on the Democratic side of politics amongst kind of big brained, galaxy brained uh, types like Andrew Yang and, and others is this call for a, an overhaul of American democratic like just laws around democracy both in terms of equal enfranchisement of excuse me different racial groups um you know making rendering more robust the, the laws that discuss this kind of stuff and reconsidering gerrymandering and reconsidering how districts are drawn and yeah. the electoral college like this fundamental sense that something's broken at the core of American politics in a way that you can't just blame on social media and cultural factors. I what do definitely, you yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't think the, I don't think the electoral college should be uh, replaced. That probably sounds crazy to your listeners. Uh, I know it's a very seemingly strange system we have, um, but I do think is it, it, it is an important um, check on, uh, the, the the tyranny of, of the majority. I think the real problem is in the gerrymandering of congressional districts. And we've gotten to the point now where we're losing moderates. You know, the Republican moderates are pretty much gone. Um, but even increasingly on the Democratic side, you see um, the rising left. And the reason for this is because these districts are so heavily, heavily gerrymandered um, that who uh, it's in the in the primaries in the party primaries, it's becoming increasingly easier for the most right wing if you're in a red state or a red district, or if you're in a or in, in a blue one for the most left wing candidate to win, right? And so it makes it difficult for moderates on either side of the aisle to win elections, um, and it's a really hard problem to solve, right? Because both sides want to gerrymander; um, they want to make the safest districts possible so that there isn't. Um, much of a challenge uh, to their to their power, but the result and of gerrymandering. That, we hear about gerrymandering, but just rem remind us how it works. So there are two electorates side by side. Well, it's the same. In, yes, it's the same in any. It's the same in any parliamentary democracy, right? It's how yes. you draw how you draw a district. Um, they call them ridings in in Canada. I'm not sure what you call them in Australia. Um, electorates. Ele yeah. And you draw them, you, you draw the boundaries of it in such a way that you include um, that you you, so, you you try to make it as favorable to your side as possible, right? So yes, let's I say let, let, be, let's yeah, say yeah, yeah, let's say there's a district that's 50-50, Republican Democrats, very competitive. Whoever's going to win that congressional race is probably going to end up being a moderate, right? Because they have to appeal to people across the political spectrum. But if you tinker with the boundaries, and if you look at some of these congressional districts in the United States, they're, I mean, they, I don't, I don't even know how to describe them. They look like, you know, um, constellations well, in the sky. They look like salamanders, I mean, which is where yeah. the salamander comes from. Well, it comes from uh, El uh, Elbridge Jerry, I think was his name, who was a senator or congressman or whatever, who kind of came up with this. 
Yeah. Um, and so no, you draw the yeah. Wrote, it's because he drew one that looked, that looked like, like a salamander. salamander. Okay. So it was a Jerry. Right, gerrymander. There you go. Right. So you draw the district in such a way that you favor your party. Um, and so it makes sense from a pure, you know, if you're a Republican and you want to win, it would make sense in that kind of initial um, reasoning. But the long-term result of these policies is that you've you've made it very difficult for moderates to win elections. Right. And so just to, to give a concrete example, I'm just sort of playing with numbers in my head. If there's an, if there were, a, imagine, a, imagine an area in which two districts or two electorates lie and it's 60% one party and 40% the other, then you could have two electorates that are 60, you could have an electorate that's 60, 40, but if you, if you split it in such a way that it was 55 to 50, then, so in other words, make the margin less in each of them so that one party wins both rather than clustering them all, all of your votes together. In other words, anything, any vote that you get that's above 51% is essentially a wasted vote. So right. those voters into the neighboring electorate and then get yourself up to 51% in both electorates rather than having 90% in a single electorate. Did I mangle that? No, I think that's right. And one solution to this is that some states, I'm not I'm, California may be one of them, have yeah, created they, they've they've created nonpartisan bodies. I mean, if you were <laughs> Jamie, that, the US, yeah. US political system is so crazy because if you were, you know, the genius of the founding fathers and the the brilliance of the American political system with its checks and balances. How about this, Americans? Don't have partisan political elected figures being the yeah. ones who figure out where the boundaries of the electorates are. Yes. In every other democracy, this is drawn by, you know, it's never gonna be perfect, but they sure. are bureaucrats, they're demo yeah. demographers who look at population you know and have uh movements and and are, are duty bound to be apolitical in the in the way that they draw election boundaries sure Only but there is a competing there is a competing school of there's there's a competing school on the left and it's been quite legitimate which is that you know black voters in certain states were d disenfranchised right for for many many years and so part of the reason why um some democrats uh, oppose these sorts of nonpartisan, uh, supposed nonpartisan um, bodies is because they want to increase black representation in Congress. They want black elected officials, right? And so they want majority black districts where a, where a, where a black uh, a, a candidate or a Latino candidate is more likely to win. Mm. And so that's that's the sort of competing arguments, I think, on the left. I mean, but um, the demographer would take that into consideration, presumably, if there was a black community that constitutes itself as a community, then you would assume that there should be some weight given to that. I assume that demographers give such weight. You know, yes. you've got a, a Korean-Australian neighborhood. That's mm. gonna that's unlikely to get split into two electorates, I think. Well, it depends. Um, it, or, or, or it could be grouped in with another larger neighborhood, right? I mean, this is also complex. Well, um, yeah. And there's also a whole body of, I think, Supreme Court d decisions and sort of legal, you know, jurisprudence um, on redistricting and, and there and, and, and there there are civil rights, you know, precedents in some of these cases where there have mm. been attempts, there have been attempts by certain states. Um, and this 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 is not about, you know, voting day. This is about the kind of this is about how districts are shaped. Because yeah. certain certainly in southern states they would attempt ways of drawing districts in order to dilute the power um, of certain um, ethnic uh, voting blocks. Right, right. And by the way, just on before we leave this and get on to gays in Washington, the uh, the electoral college thing. A lot, a lot of non-Americans 
really beat up on the Electoral College as being insanely undemocratic. But of course, in the House, which is in a parliamentary democracy where you form government from anyway, this same phenomenon happens because electorates, precisely because of the kind of gerryma- the natural gerrymandering that happens even without gerrymandering. So in 1998 in Australia, the person who won the largest number of votes in Australia did not become the prime minister. It happens rarely, but mm. not infrequently that the person who gets the largest number of votes doesn't get to form government because all of those votes might be concentrated in particular areas. You might have mm. a, a left winger, as happened in 1998, who was very, very popular in the big urban centres with your latte sipping, uh, Chardonnay swilling progressives. Uh, but, uh, you know, all of those votes are 90% clustered in electorates that he was already going to win. And then the conservative who has a more broad based support, but less, uh, popularity nationwide, who gets fewer votes, wins more seats and is able to form government. So, uh, I mean, my criticism of the electoral college is that the, the demography of America is changing so much that what originally seemed yeah. justifiable is becoming ridiculously Mm-hmm. skewed and probably needs tweaking but i don't think there's anything fundamentally undemocratic about the idea of clustering sure. groups together and not necessarily having a perfect one person one vote um outcome um jamie let's talk about your book because the for a start why why this why why the secret history of gays in in washington what piqued your interest initially well Washington is a city, I think like most large national capitals of big, important countries. Um, you know, maybe Canberra is the same. I can't speak to it. Well, but let's let's, not, say a, let's it, not say too big or too important. Yeah, yeah. There, secret, secrets are a form of power, right? And, and particularly during the Cold War, which is when my book takes place. Um, secrecy is just a part of everyday life. And the more ac- the access to secrets, the more secrets you can accumulate, the more powerful you are. Um, and there was no greater or more dangerous secret during this era of American history than being a homosexual or a sexual deviant, uh, as gays were called. And this just seemed like a fascinating, rich topic to explore, you know, beginning with FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, which is when the national security state really begins, is, is in the years leading up to World War II. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the United States did not have a national security bureaucracy prior to that. There's a famous quote by uh, Herbert Hoover's Secretary of State who said that gentlemen don't read each other's mail, which sounds like a preposterous <laughs> notion today. But that's that was sort of the attitude. I mean, it was it was it was a kind of a low and dirty business espionage. But then it becomes very important. Um, and so during the Cold War, it became this. Um, it, it became the worst possible, the most dangerous possible thing to be to be a homosexual, not only as an elected official in politics, but also in the federal government as a, as a government worker. And the more I read, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that you can really draw a straight line from FDR all the way through every president until the end of the century. And you can look at these fascinating ways in which homosexuality impacted American politics from the rise of the FBI and the CIA to McCarthyism to the African-American civil rights movement, to Watergate, to even the Iran-Contra scandal, the Reagan administration. Every president uh, had some sort of you know, interaction 
um, with either a gay aide or advisor or someone in their retinue. Um, they all had to confront this issue. And it, said, it says a lot about the individual presidents, about their character. And I think it, uh, it says a lot about American history to kind of, re, to kind of reevaluate American political history uh, through this lens of, of the fear and the fascination that uh, our country had with uh, homosexuality. I mean, there are two kind of revelations there that struck me, Jamie. One is that we always think of the 20th century. Uh, we, when we think of the Cold War, I think of McCarthyism and I think of, of witch hunts and I think of how taboo it was to even flirt with communism or socialism at a time when the USSR represented such a uh, an existential threat. And you basically make the point that it was it was worse actually to be gay than it was to be a communist yeah. in most circles, in most political circles during that time. Yeah. So there, there are these two things going on. One is don't let anybody think that you might be a, a communist. But secondly, if you're gay, I mean, don't definitely don't let anybody know that that you're gay. Yeah. And then this other thing that struck me was that there, there could be characteristics of gay people that actually suit them to being mm -hmm. spooks and spies because they're used to hiding things in such an environment. So you actually do get a kind of a clustering effect of people in important positions and high power positions surrounding presidents and national security staff who are themselves closeted gays and who are themselves the worst thing you can be yeah. even worse than a communist. Well, I say that Washington was simultaneously the gayest and the most anti-gay city in America. Which is appropriate. Mm. Which, which is appropriate because Washington is also the capital of hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> and you know the reason for this is if you think if you're a gay man, let's say, because most of the important jobs in Washington were men, almost all of them. You had very few women in any positions of seniority, which is not to say that there weren't many women in Washington, but they were doing secretarial and administrative work. But let's say you're a gay or lesbian person in the 1930s, right? And you're living in some small town because America was a much more rural place back then. Um, you want to get out of that small town. And I think that applies to gay people all around the world, you know, at, at least in this era. Um, yeah. Gay people are attracted to to cities, and that's a big part of the gay story in the 20th century is of urbanization. Um, because you can move to a city, you can lead a more anonymous life, you can kind of escape the small town prejudices and the kind of prying eyes of your neighbors. And that's why gay subcultures uh, started to develop in cities around this time, and Washington was no exception. In the 1930s, Washington is, is being transformed from this you know, sleepy southern swamp into uh, really the kind of the capital of the free world. You have the New Deal is being you know, instituted, all these federal agencies are being built, the population is doubling um, over just a couple of years in the 1930s. And so Washington becomes a very attractive place. And I also think government work in particular was was suitable to gay people for some of the reasons you say. Um, just think about a job in the State Department, right? You get to travel overseas, um, and every couple of years you're being sent to a different post. So being a bachelor, which, you know, in, at least in America at this time, once you get into your 30s or 40s, people are going to start asking questions if you're a bachelor. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the State Department, and you have this excuse, oh, I don't have time for a family. I have to move, you know, I have to move from city to city every four or five years. Then that becomes a kind of good cover. And so you did see a right. number of gay men in the State Department. And the State Department would develop in the early years of the Cold War um, this kind of reputation as being this haven of what they used to call cookie pushers, right? These sort of men who would sit at 
these diplomats who would just you know give you cookies in the embassy and they and they were the very effeminate and that was kind of the um the stereotype of the american diplomat in the early years of the cold war when america was losing i love this i'm gonna start calling all my friends cookie pushers it sounds it sounds strangely dirty it sounds like you're talking about something that's uh that's unseemly (laughs) but you're actually talking about literal cookies Yes, right. Yes, I'm just, I'm just offering you a tray of, of Oreos. Um, and so in the early years of the Cold War, America is, is not doing well, right? We, we, we lost China. Uh, that was the, the cry of the McCarthyites, that you know, Mao defeated Chiang Kai-shek. We lost China. Uh, the Soviet Union was making inroads across Eastern Europe. And this plays into McCarthy's accusation that you know, it wasn't just... The fact that, say, you know, Mao had more uh, vigorous troops or better strategy or Stalin was, you know, geographically closer to Eastern Europe and he had the forces and he had the ability to, you know, run riot uh, over Eastern Europe. McCarthy makes the allegation that it was actually uh, Americans, you know, within our own country, within the State Department, within the Roosevelt and the Truman administrations who were uh, allowing this to happen. They wanted this to happen. And he said that it was communists and queers were were behind these losses. And the two became very intertwined um, mm. in the American imagination. Because if you think about it, you know, communists are, are subversives. They are opposed to, you know, motherhood and apple pie in the American system. Well, homosexuals are also subversives. They're sexually subversive. Uh, both, of, both communists and homosexuals, they live in the shadows. They live secret lives. And so it became quite easy um, for Americans to to kind of make this connection that that communists were homosexuals and homosexuals were communists, even though there was you know no real evidence of this, um, but it became a very potent symbol um, in the early years of the Cold War. Is there any? I mean, just not to give credit to or <laughs> credence to someone as vile as Joe McCarthy, but is there any way in which there was a line that can be drawn between someone who is forced to reconsider all of the givens that a you know a culturally conservative society is handing to them and their propensity to to stray from the flock i mean i, I do think gay people uh have a history of being creative and subversive in ways that are not just sexual and maybe their sexuality pushes them to ask questions about the things that they're being told? I mean, in that respect, is it conceivable that there's a a line to be drawn between not being 100% on board with apple pie? Well, there there, there were certainly gays who believed that way. And and in fact, in 1951, early into this era, there's the very famous case of Guy Burgess, who um, was a British diplomat uh, and spy who turned out to be a Russian spy, and he had been working in Washington in the embassy, and he defected in 1951. He was also a, a, a homosexual, and, he, and he's this kind of legendary figure. I mean, books have been written about him. He was a real colorful character, um, and the, you, in, in in his case, you could make that connection that he was um, sort of a rebel against society. But mm. I could also I could also point you to another character in my book, Roy Cohn, right? Who was a rabid, who was Joe McCarthy's lawyer. Uh, and later would serve a man we spoke, we opened this podcast with, would become Donald Trump's lawyer in the 1980s. Uh, and Roy Cohn was a notorious figure in American politics. He was a real right winger. 
uh, but he was gay as well. He was a closeted homosexual, right? So I could point to homosexuals on on either side of the political spectrum. Um, but certainly, yes, in the 1950s in America, homosexuality was uh, a very underground, secret existence, and that I think that also played into um, the conception that that homosexuals were more likely or more prone to be communists. Although I should say, there's an entire chapter of my book that during World War II. Uh, the United States, many people in the United States, including leaders of our intelligence services and in our, in our political parties, associated Nazism with homosexuality. Right. Um, right. And this goes all the way back to Ernst Rome, who was the leader of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, who were the brown shirts. I mean, let's um, face it, the Nazis are much gayer. Like if, you're looking, <laughs> if you've got your... Uh, the oh, Hugo well, Boss all, uniforms, yes. Yeah, I mean, they look... But yes, exactly. And there's a lot of like... You know, reverence for the outdoorsy natural physique of the it's beautiful a, Aryan flesh. It's a, it's a cult of masculinity, right? Um, and so right. again, there there was a kernel of truth to this in the sense that yes, the head of the SA was a gay man. He may have had a few gay men around him. Of course, Hitler liquidated him very early on in his rule in the Night of the Long Knives. But this sort of led to this myth, and in fact, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor to the CIA, it was founded by FDR during World War II. I came across multiple reports that they uh, they um, made, they they asked these uh, psychiatrists at Harvard to do these psychological studies of Hitler and the Nazi movement, hundreds of pages, and they elaborated length on this theory that homosexuals were attracted to Nazism. And they gave various reasons for it because, you know, they have nothing left to lose. They're more willing to take risks. They want to change society. But again, these are the same rationales that would be given uh, for gays being communists. And so I think mm. what we learned from this is that, and we see this even to this day in American politics, and I think it's probably true in many societies, that we, we like to attribute sexual depravity to our political enemies. And that's basically what QAnon is, right? What is what is the what is the right. claims that QAnon makes that our nation's elites, or really our global, the global elites, are a bunch of pedophile sickos, mm. um, which to me is not that different of a kind of conspiratorial mindset. And thinking, oh well, when we were fighting Nazism in America, we associated Hitler and the Nazis with homosexuals, um, and then just a, just a few years later, that was all forgotten. We had a new enemy, communism. And then uh, we're we're associating communists with homosexuals, right, right? So it's a very kind of versatile prejudice. Yeah, and I mean, you don't have to just stop at QAnon today. Look at the hysteria around groomers and about yes. uh, you know yes. young people being led into a gay or transgender lifestyle. Right. And I mean, then I suppose on the left, it's not quite analogous, but certainly the the accusations of irredeemable political, uh, sorry, sexual dysfunction within religious institutions you know much yeah. of that is uh, is true but sure. some of it also be exaggerated um and just for people who don't know roy cohen the i mean the other that where my mind always goes is to al pacino in right. angels yep. america which is the he's he plays roy cohen by yep. another name um yeah that's okay that's interesting so at what point do and there's a lot of there's a lot of death i mean there's a lot of murder and suicides of this cohort of gay people in high yeah. in positions of power throughout the 20th century is that uh, i mean I, I guess the suicides are understandable if they find themselves in precarious situations but also one of the reasons why there was such hysteria against gays 
in the national security state was because they could be a liability because they could be bribed, right? So I that mean, was the rationale. So if right. the the beyond the sort of cultural fear that gays would be subversive, you could say there was a more pragmatic argument, which was, well, whether we like it or not, America is an extremely homophobic society. This is a total taboo. Um, most of the newspapers at the time wouldn't even print the word homosexual. They would come up with all these euphemisms to describe it. That's how bad it was. And so if that's what you are and that's what you're hiding, then you will go to any lengths to protect your secret, including, up to and including, uh, being a traitor, right? Accepting payments or, or, or um, uh, you, it makes you more susceptible or liable to be blackmailed, right? If a foreign power gets evidence of this and they say that they'll publicize it, um, then that is uh, a reason to keep gay people out of government jobs. Now, mm. interestingly, in 1991, the U.S. Defense Department did a study of 120 cases of Americans who had committed treason, and only six were gay. And of those, not a single one of them had been induced to treason via blackmail. They'd done it for money or they'd done it for ideological reasons unrelated to their homosexuality. So there was actually no factual evidence. There wasn't a single case of a gay person who had been blackmailed. The only case that was ever cited in America was uh, one involving the chief of counterintelligence in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> he was a man named Colonel Alfred Radel. And in 1913, it was discovered by the Austro-Hungarian government that he was selling secrets to the Russians. Um, and this became this major story and because uh, it was revealed that he was gay. Mm -hmm. And the two became conflated, and the regime was extremely embarrassed by this, right? Because he was the head of their counterintelligence. He was the guy who was supposed to be finding moles within their service. It turned out he was himself a mole. And so they encouraged this story that he was gay and he had been blackmailed by the Russians. And it became very widely known in sort of Western intelligence circles. And in fact, when the head of the CIA was testifying uh, in 1950, right when McCarthy is launching this lavender scare, right, that, of, of the purge of gay people alongside the Red Scare, the only case that he could cite as evidence of a gay person being blackmailed was the Radel case. And Alan Dulles, who would go on to become the leader of the CIA under um, Eisenhower and Kennedy. He wrote several books about espionage, and he also cited the Radel case. It became this kind of foundational myth. And it wasn't until after the Cold War ended and the Russian archives were opened that it was discovered that the Russians did not even know that Radel was gay. He was, hmm. in fact, he was in fact referred to as a lover of women uh, by his handler. And the reason that he had become a spy was because he, he wanted money. He had very expensive tastes. He liked fine wines. He had a wine cellar with thousands of bottles of very you know rare uh, uh, wines in them, he had multiple cars, yeah. um, so he was he was doing it for money, right? And so, it, yes, there there is this um, when you when when you think about it at first thought or sort of first consideration, even a liberal minded person in the nineteen fifties might think, well, we might not like that this atmosphere of homophobia exists, but it is what it is, and we got to keep these people out, but. I think the answer to that, which some of the early gay rights activists in the United States made at the time, was, well, if the U.S. government just said, look, if you're a homosexual and uh, the Soviets try to blackmail you, come to us and tell us, and we will maintain you in your job. And I actually tell the story of one case. It doesn't involve a government employee, but it involves a very prominent newspaper journalist at the time whose name was Joe Alsop, and he was a virulent anti-communist. 
1957, he was visiting the Soviet Union and he had, he interviewed uh, Khrushchev. I mean, that's how important he was. Wow. And one night he was seduced by a young man at dinner, went, took him back to his hotel room. They did the deed. And then seconds later, in burst a bunch of KGB agents and they slapped down some photographs on the table. And they say to him, basically, we want you to become a source for us when you return to Washington. And what Alsop did was he actually wrote it. He, he told his friend, who happened to be the ambassador, the American ambassador in Moscow, he told his friend what happened. Uh, the ambassador got him on the next flight out to Paris. He met with some CIA men in Paris, and he wrote out a nine-page confession of everything that had happened. Going back to boyhood, he said, I, I've been an incurable homosexual since boyhood. But I figured if, if I never hurt anyone, then um, you know, I would sort of deal with it myself. And he, and he went through all the details, all the details of how the young man approached him, kind of the intelligence tradecraft that, that was used. So he, he did exactly what a gay person in such a situation you know, ought to have done mm. and what the national security state, you know, would have wanted him to have done. Um, and what's interesting is that he went, he, he continued his journalism career in full knowledge that the Soviets and the U.S. government knew this about him. And it didn't stop him from criticizing various American government officials, administrations. He was one of the most, as I said, virulent anti-communists. He was he was the most pro-Vietnam War American journalist. He was really a dead ender. Right. Um, and at any moment, right, someone could have uh, released this information. And what's interesting is that the Soviets did try to do this. In 1971, so 14 years after this incident in Moscow, a bunch of people in Washington started receiving manila envelopes that, that had no return address on them. And they contained photographs of a young Joe Alsop having sex with a man in a hotel room. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is 1971. No one, and, and by the way, these envelopes were sent to journalists, to his, his enemies in Washington, right? People who did not like him. He was very controversial. No one did anything with those photographs. They put them in the garbage. They put them in the trash. And so, you know, Washington was a different place back then. If you were a certain, if you were a kind of influential, powerful person like Joe Alsop, mm. um, I can't imagine today you know, if like if 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 uh, Rachel Maddow received uh, a Manila envelope with compromising photographs of Tucker Carlson, I don't think she would throw them in the trash, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, the the kind of rules have changed in that, in that sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, so yeah, this the, the 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 entire pretext of of the lavender scare was really kind of it, it, there 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 was no actual factual basis for it. And Jamie, when uh, clearly someone like Alsop thinks of themselves as a homosexual, knows that they are a homosexual, but, you know, is, is, is capable, has the self-reflection of being able to write a nine-page confession saying, since my earliest years, I've been yeah. an irredeemable homosexual. But there must be, there must have been a lot of kind of fooling around in a slightly ambiguous kind of, you know, like one character in your book is Gore Vidal, who shows up quite a lot, uh, it, the, who represented not uh, an irredeemable vision of homosexuality as like a broken condition, but a kind of playful sort of bisexual, like devil may care attitude towards sexuality. Were all of the people who were implicated in this tale homosexual, self-conceived of homosexuals or how much kind of fucking around on the sidelines was there? That's a good question. You know, 
I do believe that there was more bisexual activity um, in these years, particularly after World War II, in the immediate years after World War II. Because, you know, wars, particularly big wars, they tend to kind of loosen sexual morals uh, in a way and sort of sexual traditions. Um, but again, the attitude towards it was similar to what you find in some Latin American countries, right, where, you know, the active partner would not consider himself gay, the top, right. if you will, right? It's, you're and not so, gay if you're just getting a blowjob from a dude as long as you close your eyes and think of... Well, yeah, and think of England, right? So that yeah. would not necessarily be considered uh, homosexual activity. But that's not... But you know what? During the Lavender Scare, that would have been enough to get you kicked out, sure. right? Sort of a one-time experience... Um, if you admitted to it or they found evidence of it, that would be enough to do you in. I mean, it's still enough in most people's eyes. <laughs> right? Today, I mean, in yes. Dude's eyes, it's most, it, that's still enough to raise But it's funny, you money. talk to older gay men, and I'm talking at this point, people like in their 80s, and they sometimes speak fondly of a time, you know, before gay liberation, uh, when they say that, you know, the, the notion of a homosexual identity was, mm. not, as, was not as firm. Mm. Right. That and that there were more opportunities for the kind of rough trade. Right. There were more opportunities to sleep with men who would otherwise be straight because they because the culture didn't necessarily define that as homosexual. Yeah. And so they yeah. kind of speak fondly of this era before liberation as one in which there were actually more opportunities um, to sleep with people because pe people were more. I don't know if open-minded is the word, but maybe they were more willing to experiment with with sex of people of the, of the same gender than mm. they are to, than they are today, where you feel kind of locked into one identity. Although I look, I'm 39, and I and I look now at Generation Z, and I don't know what's going on with their sexual. Well, that's right. I mean, it's going so. it's going in the same direction, isn't it? I mean, I what it do you to be. Yeah. how do you feel about that trajectory? Uh, I mean. I, d I always feel like I like people will hear me as saying something that I'm not when I say that it was more open-minded back then because they that seems to contain a criticism of supposed closed-mindedness of any dude who doesn't want to get a blowjob from a guy, which seems un seems cruel and unfair to people who just genuinely don't want to. But when you look at the grand sweep of human history and the number of cultures that there have been and the number of times and places where there's been a more fluid uh, set of behaviors around sex, especially in the more furious hormonal periods of life, like in your teens and 20s, and you look at the situational homosexuality of all male uh, environments like prisons and mm -hmm. private schools and so on, it's hard for me not to think that homosexuality as a as a subset of the human species that has a clear boundary around it was a necessary fiction for us to create in order to liberate ourselves sometime between world war two and the 1990s, I guess, if you want to put the end of it with marriage equality in the Western world, I do think that although there is still homophobia, there's still fat phobia, there's still bigotries of all kind in terms of what you can say in polite society and what, we have all gotten on board with now and what we have got corporations on board with and the rainbow flags and the pride and everything. We've basically achieved a, a level of equality that is comparable to other minorities. And is it, is it now time for the, for Gen Z to take up the mantle of doing away with gayness and heterosexuality? Well, 
altogether. Look, I, first of all, I would separate situational homosexuality, which you refer to as all male environments, the military, prison, all boys schools. I would I would separate that out from the kind of homosexual identity of a of a you know well functioning healthy adult. Um, if you're in prison or the military or an all boys school, is that really the same as being as being kind of an, an acknowledged gay person who understands himself as a gay person is making that decision to pursue that sort of life? I'm not saying it's a choice, right? But in those all male environments, that's it's almost I don't want to say forced, but it's it's the only outlet, right? And so if you're going to have a bunch of hormonal people in a kind of closed environment. Um, and that's no, the, well, only, yeah, but, the only the only outlet for sexual release. I, I would just distinguish course. that. Uh, no, no, but they, yeah, of course, of course, they, of course, they're different. But but the question is, are they different for inherent biological reasons, or are they different because of the cultural story that they tell? Well, so right, so what's interesting now is we see this spike in LGBT self identification among Gen Z. But what's interesting is that there's been this there's been the spike in the identification. There has not been a concomitant spike in same sex sexual activity. So what we have frankly, are a lot of people claiming an LGBT, or I should say queer identity, because that word, I don't know about Australia, but in, in, in the US, the word queer over the past couple yeah. of years has really taken off. And that word does a lot of work, because yeah. queer can encompass basically someone who's straight, okay, and who has never had sex with someone of the same sex, and might not even desire to, but they want to kind of have this sort of, you know, outre, outre sort of, again, subversive personality basically if you're like a boring white cisgender straight person you can call yourself <laughs> yeah. queer yeah could you so, maybe you're gender non-binary or maybe you're a demisexual which means right. that you're only physically attracted to people who you're emotionally attracted to or you yeah. can find labels so, i don't think i don't think that the number of same-sex attracted people changes i think it's it's we're basically two to five percent of the human race and we always have been and always will you know, barring some kind of, I don't know, you know, exogenous, <laughs> maybe they'll put something mm -hmm. in the water that will change that, right? So I don't really think that that's changed. I don't see how it would change. Well, wait a second. What do you mean by people who are attracted to the same sex? Because, again, just to come back to the situational homosexuality argument of the prison or the boys' school, the claim of the sexuality binar binary believers that there is such a thing as a straight person and a, a gay person per se, the claim would be that in any and all circumstances, uh, um, for a, a, for a straight person to be attracted to another, to a member of the same sex, is a meaning is ontologically impossible. It's not. It's like that is not something that they are capable of feeling. That's like them being attracted to a cat or. Well, a no, chair. no, I'm not. I, I'm. I am allowing for bisexuality. I believe bisexuality exists. Right. But I don't. I don't see why the number of bisexuals would suddenly sharply increase among Gen Z. You know, if you look at the numbers, something like twenty five percent of Gen Z is now identifying, and some some polls put it at forty percent. In the United States, I don't believe that. Okay, I think it is it is a political identity at this point. That's what yeah, that's, no, that's what well, queerness are, is. Yeah, I mean, I completely concede your point that there's a lot of inflation of numbers yeah. by people trying to sound cool, yeah. uh, and you know, it's questionable whether or not a 15 year old who just wants to seem hip is uh, is actually a member of a sexual minority because they've declared themselves to to be one of the labels that they found online. But I also don't think that that you can easily explain away societies like ancient Greece or ancient Rome or Paris in the nineteenth century or some or a lot of like 
Samoan islands and places like mm. that where there is rampant and bis- and widespread bisexuality uh, without giving some credence to what, I don't know if you know the Canadian cultural theor- theorist Bert Archer, who has a great book no. called The End of Gay and the Death of Heterosexuality, mm. but I recommend it if it's still in print. Bert says, I think it's Bert who said uh, that bisexuality is a condition that looms so large, bisexuality looms so large on the human condition that it's invisible or something mm-hmm. like that, like that it, you almost can't see it. So if it were the, if it were the case that, that some significant minority or even majority of people, given the correct circumstances and given the correct software running in their brain about what such behaviors imply about them, Namely, maybe it implies nothing about my identity to take this blowjob from this guy. If that cohort of people is very large, then you can accordion in and out uh, a very flexible uh, categorization when you're doing your ontology of human sexuality from 2%, only 2% are so irredeemably gay that they can never get a hard on for the opposite sex. And, you know, they're writing nine page confessions Mm. uh, to, I don't know, 40%, 50%, 70% of the population could conceivably like a hardwired in such a way that given the right cultural makeup and the right situation and the right uh, whatever could become aroused by some kind of activity with the same sex. I mean, maybe, but again, looking at Gen Z, this is the most liberal progressive generation. You would, if that were the case, you would expect to see a similar rise in actual same-sex activity. But again, we're not. Well, how do we know we're not? Well, because the polls ask them. They ask them, you know, how do you identify? But then they also ask them, have you actually had a same-sex sexual experience? It's part of the polling. Right. And so you you have these people who will identify as gay or bi. But then on the questionnaire, the only sexual... Uh, acts that they've engaged in have been with members of the opposite sex. I mean, that may be because we're asking <laughs> the wrong cohorts of people, and the, there's but that's a the youngest. But that's the youngest, most progressive, yeah. most tolerant no, generation. In, so you would, yeah, you would expect they're also, to... the, they're also the ones who've had the least experience sexually. I mean, if you ask people who are thirty or thirty-five whether or not they've ever had a, a same-sex experience, then the numbers are reasonably high, even if they're not. Well, if they don't identify as a but they, but they're but they're the the gap between identification and activity is much much smaller, right? So you actually have people um, at that age, thirty-five, forty, and older, um, who I would say they're telling the truth, right? Like if they're they're saying they're gay, m- almost exclusively or most of their sexual activity is is with people of of the same sex it's only among gen z that we see this massive gap no i think there's a gap in the other direction among 35 year olds that people who say that they're straight when you really dig down and do surveys like you know and they can't have their name on the survey but when you do things like i don't know people have found you know people who are posting on craigslist for for girls and they've done sure sure. if you talk about a sexually active cohort of people so that you're excluding uh, people who might have religious hang-ups or who might be in long-term monogamous relationships. Amongst sexually active people, there's, there is, you know, surprisingly high numbers of people who, of guys who will confess to, well, when I was 17, I mean, sure. yeah, you know, that was just one time or whatever. Yeah. yeah, well, look, the definition of a gay person, I guess, would be someone who is, uh, whose, whose attraction is exclusively or predominantly toward a member of the same sex and, the opposite would be true for heterosexuals, right? That they are exclusively or predominantly 
Yeah. Um, and, and obviously that word predominantly can be doing a lot of work there, right? I mean, if 20, if 20 percent of your sexual activities is with someone of the same sex, does that make you bi or could you or are you straight at that point? You know, I don't know. Maybe that's for the for the yeah, I mean, to clearly depends entirely on on culture. And as as you say, yes. Gen Z is rewriting the rules on that. And so yeah. they're saying you're definitely something in, in that case. Um, I don't want to leave the, the question of the Soviet Union and communism without teasing out your thoughts about uh, groupthink and political groupthink and free speech and cancel culture and so on, because you recently made an analogy about this letter that's been written uh, and the campaign that's been launched against the New York Times for its coverage of transgender issues with the kind of collective letters of denunciation that used to exist during the Cold War um, without, you know, with people will always accuse me of, of making a mountain out of a molehill whenever we touch cancel culture because, hey, the New York Times still exists and it's still allowed to do whatever it wants to. But what motivated this comparison? Well, I think this is actually an important example. And yes, the New York Times still exists. But I mean, to, to give some background, the New York Times published a series of articles over the past year that have uh, challenged, I would say, some of the kind of radical transgender theories or claims particularly having to do with the administration of puberty blockers to young people, uh, the uh, trans women in women's sports, and also the practice of some public schools uh, hiding uh, gender transitions of students from their parents. Um, and again, this is the New York Times. This is not some right-wing rag, uh, but merely for publishing articles that questioned some of the prevailing, I would say, progressive shibboleths. The, one of the leading gay activist groups in this country, or, or I should say LGBTQIA plus groups, um, organized a public campaign. They organized a, 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 an open letter that was signed by several uh, prominent celebrities in this country, Judd Apatow, Hannah Gadsby, the purported comedian from your country, um, yeah. as well as Sorry another... <laughs> It's okay. Um, I've never even, but I've never even <laughs> all of Nanette. I don't even know where the jokes are. I don't know why. Oh, this, God. Don't even get me started. Um, but then yeah. there was another, but then they, they coordinated it with another letter that's to, you know, that was signed by thousands of American journalists attacking the New York Times. Um, and, they were, and they named uh, the, the reporters and the writers who wrote these articles as basically saying that they are responsible for denying the existence of transgender people using this very emotive language simply for reporting facts. And I think what's important here is that, yes, you know, the New York Times stood up to the bullies and said, look, this is inappropriate. We are a news uh, reporting organization. We're not an activist group. You're welcome to criticize us. Um, but the point is that they sent a message. You know, they, 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 they sent a message to other journalists and other writers, which is that don't question us you know if you want to if you want to tread on this issue of transgenderism you better be careful and look over your back because if you question uh you know whether or not it's appropriate to give puberty blockers or whether or not it's appropriate for young girls to be getting mastectomies any of these very contentious and serious questions that surround the whole transgender debate transgender debate um if you deign to challenge us and what we consider to be the truth because according to them, the science is settled, which it's absolutely not, right? But according to them, it is. This sends a, this sends a message. And, and so in that sense, 
yes, the New York Times is still standing and the New York Times hasn't been canceled, but there's a real fear around these issues. And they, and they cast a pall over this entire question. I mean, I would say that, you know, even more than race, and it's, it sounds crazy to say this, I would say even more than race in America, I think the transgender issue has become the one about which people are most afraid to speak their mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's and it's crazy because uh, I mean it, 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 for for my entire life it had always been race that was the most contentious issue and that would, that had always been the most controversial one the most heated one for understandable and obvious reasons but now it's become the transgender issue and it's because of incidents like this and you know but signing uh, yeah, so go ahead j- just to try to articulate the counterpoint here. Um, like I heard Kara Swisher, who I normally respect as a journalist, you know, she wrote a long Twitter thread against the Times, saying that there's there's a, a claim of a, a claim that people who who oppose coverage of a certain kind are doing activism, whereas the paper of record is just doing journalism. But that inherent in the editorial choices that a paper makes about what to cover and what not to cover is an implicit. Uh, judgment, and that judgment can sometimes tip into activism. And if you if you chose to report constantly on what great things I don't know Dow Chemicals is doing for the environment, there would come a point at which that would no longer be reporting, and that would now be activism. And similarly, if in your coverage of trans issues you are regularly giving voice to people who are skeptical about about transition about you know i don't know pediatric transition for example then that becomes a way of doing activism from the other side and i guess the well, you know at all yeah anyway take I, that i understand that but i mean you can look at the times coverage of transgender issues in general and there have been plenty of articles that present i mean for instance they published an article just a couple of weeks ago about um, the violence that transgender people experience. There have been endless coverage of these bills, and very sympathetic to the trans community, of these bills at state at state level to ban, you know, various forms of transgender-related health care for minors and whatnot. So again, we're talking about f- literally four or five articles that the Times published in the course of a year that you know mm-hmm. dared to question the progressive view on this and try to i mean what also amazed me i haven't read all of those articles but i certainly read the main feature piece that got people in a huff in the first place which was by emily bazelon who i have a lot of time for and emily is a terrific journalist and a a, you know a a card-carrying progressive and all she was doing was reporting on the existence of a dispute within the medical establishment wasn't putting forward any point of view she was saying Here's a here's a conversation that is ruffling a lot of feathers with uh, yeah. within amongst doctors themselves. Precisely, so that- and I think the reason for this outburst from the radical transgender activists is that they see what's going on in Europe. Okay, where the United Kingdom, Finland, Sweden, countries that that had engaged in pediatric transgender treatments long before the United States did, they're now dialing it back. Okay, and they're now making it, and they're now raising the threshold. Um, for administering puberty blockers and what they euphemistically refer to as gender-affirming care. I mean, I find that term to be propagandistic and activisty. Okay, right. But they, they, but all those countries, which again, Sweden is Sweden, some kind of right-wing hellhole. No, um, those countries and their medical establishments are dialing it back because 
for too long. They were way far out. Um, there's the close, you know, the, this horrible story about this clinic in London, the Tavistock Clinic, that was basically treating young people like lab rats. And by the way, a lot, if not most of these kids, I think, are gay, right? Because if you're a gender non-conforming 12-year-old or younger, uh, there's a good chance you're going to grow up to be gay, okay? But instead, because of this transgender moment we're having, a lot of young people are now confused, and they're being told that if you are gender non-conforming, if you look at the if you look at the definition of what transgender is that these activist groups give out, they basically describe gay people. The definition is someone whose gender identity does not match their birth sex. Well, that applies to some transgender people, but it applies to a lot of gay people. There are a lot of gay people who do not conform with their sex. In fact, that's kind of what the definition of being gay is, right? If you are a same-sex attracted person, you are not conforming with the traditional notion of what a man or a woman is, right? If you're a, a man attracted to other men, just by dint of that, you are not conforming to gender stereotypes. Well, no, but I think they understand that difference. I think that's a distinction. I think a lot of these kids right. don't, okay? I, I think a lot of them are confused. Well, I think it um, would depend on whether or not their gayness is pegged to behavioral characteristics that contravene our cliches about what that what that sex is, you know, the gender characteristics of that sex, right? So, I mean, I, in other words, just to be blunt, if they're queer, if they're campy, if they're effeminate, uh, or if, as as females, they are Butch Dyke type lesbians, then I think that's going to play into perhaps a, a, a rise in diagnoses of gender dysphoria. Right. Uh, in a way that, if you're a masculine, if you're a masculine acting homosexual, it won't. Sure, but I mean, we have the studies. The studies show that a vast majority of young people who are gender dysphoric eventually do grow out of it, and a majority of that majority turn out to be gay adults. So I'm very concerned that we have a young generation, a rising generation of gay and lesbian people, young people, who are being led astray by this very faddish ideology. Um, but anyway, this, this, is, this should be covered okay, by the New York Times. These sorts of stories should be covered. That's all that the Times was doing. And merely for reporting on ongoing debates within the medical community, among parents, at schools, for failing to toe the line, which I should say the Times did toe this line for years. And I could point to many articles that, you know, were on the opposite side of, of this that the Times used to publish. Um, merely for now backtracking a slight bit in publishing the other perspective, they were, you know, swarmed by this very aggressive PR campaign, which, yeah, reminded me of the open letters of public denunciation that would be written in the Soviet Union when... Andrei Sakharov won a Nobel Peace Prize, right? Or Solzhenitsyn won the Nobel Prize for Literature. What were they accused of? They were accused of, you know, their their writings about Soviet human rights abuses were um, exploited by fascists and imperialists in the West. In the West, the same argument was leveled against the New York Times because a handful of right-wing American politicians cited Emily Bazelon's article in their attempts to, you know, limit or make illegal. Um, certain transgender uh, health uh, pr provisions. Yeah, it's not and Emily. It's, it's not Emily Bazelon or the New York Times' job how politicians use their reporting. It is their job to report what's going on. How anyone uses that reporting is not their responsibility. Mm. 
I, I mean, think. It, it's well, I, uh, I mean, this is one of those issues where I don't mind both sides in it, and I just have to say a pox on both your houses because the the right has been so cruel, and I mean, if you believe that, if you believe. Uh, so I was having a text message conversation with a very prominent Australian gay person who was listening to a podcast, to a rant that I had done about JK Rowling in which I was basically saying that I don't see her as a transphobic bigot. I'm not sure what she's done to lead people to that conclusion. And I read out the essay that she wrote in 2020 about trans people and about her position on trans people. And I don't find anything in anything that she's said to be, to be hate speech and this, of course, now even my husband is receiving messages on his socials saying, why are you married to a fucking turf? And, mm. uh, you know, this person was texting me saying, you're infuriating, like I'm outraged. I mean, in a, in a teasing way, I'm outraged by your outrage at the response to the Harry Potter video game. Uh, and so, you know, all I was saying was that I don't think that you have the blood of trans children on your hands if you play the Harry Potter video game and this gay person was saying the only time i hear anyone saying such a thing is when it's people like you claiming that people are saying that i don't hear anyone actually i don't hear these people actually saying that i just hear people talking about how killed the conversation is around trans issues but like just look at fox news look at sky news after dark in australia which is our equivalent look at the what you see in the australian newspaper rupert murdoch's broadsheet here look at like there is Look at what Tucker Carlson says all the time. There is so much anti-trans stuff. Look at the anti-trans bills. Listen to how the, the governor of Florida talks about trans people. Like, how can you say that the problem is that there's not enough anti-trans rhetoric? To which I say, yeah, all of that stuff is noxious shit. And I, I'm not calling for more of that. I'm right. calling for us to be able to inhabit a middle ground for where it's possible to not be accused of hate speech when you say, Trans people exist. They deserve exactly the same rights as everybody else. They deserve healthcare. They deserve not to be discriminated against in the workplace. They deserve equal access to housing. They deserve everything everybody else has. Yep. And is it okay to ask whether or not cisgender women have a right to conceive of themselves as a an intellectually coherent cohort? Like, does it make any sense to say that there's something special about growing up as a girl in a patriarchal society? that's fundamental to womanhood like is that what was is is that the transphobia that we're talking about simply making well, I, claims yeah i think you see this on both sides of the political discussion which is that the heretic is hated more than the heathen right and so right. on the left on the left you're going to see progressives get much angrier about a fellow person on the left who dissents from the orthodoxy than they will the conservative because they know that yelling and screaming about Rupert Murdoch, he doesn't care what they have to say. He's not going to change Fox News's programming uh, because someone, you know, at the Nation magazine is calling him a fascist. But if you go after J.K. Rowling, you know that she's going to it's going to hurt her and she's going to respond and she's going to feel it. Right. And it also it, it, it offends them more that someone would you know leave the fold a little bit. And it's the same on. The right. I mean, you see the vituperation among, you know, Trump supporters and the MAGA types for Republicans, you know, who stand up to Trump is almost more intense than their hatred of the left. Um, because I think it's easier, right? Because you know that you're going to get a response from that person and you know that they're, they're, they're going to listen to you. Um, 
I think that's what explains it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jamie, it's uh, great to talk to you. I want to ask you some first date questions before you go, which I always okay. like to end with uh, just some raw shark questions that reveal uh, the depths of your of your true soul. Uh, what's your uh, favorite smell? My favorite smell? Um, lavender. What skill have you always wanted to learn? Guitar. Why don't you? I'm so busy, but it's on my list. I actually, I literally have a list of things I want to do before I die, my bucket mm. list. And learning to play guitar is up there along with learning Spanish and several other things. Drive, driving across the United States, I still haven't mm. done that. Mm. Um, all, all eminently achievable things. Yeah, I think so. None of these are like, you know, go to the deepest canyon and the under, undersea canyon. I have, no des I have no desire to do that. <laughs> okay, Mr. James Cameron. Uh, what was your favorite place to go? That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course, all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the, uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations.